life is short. Let's let's move toward the kind of life we want to live. In other words, I had this life that I had not lived, and I wanted to move toward the one that I wanted to. Most of us have two lives. The life we live and the unlived life within us. Nothing's perfect and there's going to be a price for everything. What's the point if you're not really feeling Welcome to The Resistance, featuring meaningful conversations. We live in a condition of constant murmuring. Like, that just doesn't happen for anyone. That explore that very space between who we are and who we say we want to be. I'm your host, Matt Connor. It was a poem titled Coniferous Fathers that first grabbed me. I tried to pause after the first few stanzas just to collect myself and control my emotions, but by the end, that proved impossible. Coniferous Fathers is my favorite entry among many beautiful and brilliant poems and worldly things. The first collection of works by Michael Kleber Diggs, released in 2021. Once I'd finished the book, I knew I wanted to track down Michael for a potential interview here on The Resistance. But what I didn't know then was just how substantive that conversation would be and just how impactful I would find the person more so than even the work itself. Now look, to properly introduce him, Michael Kleber Diggs is a poet, essayist, teacher, and literary critic. He won the Max Ritvo Poetry Prize in 21 for Worldly Things, which I just mentioned. And among other places, his writing has appeared in Poetry Daily, Poetry Northwest, Potomac Review, Hunger Mountain, Memorius, Poem a Day, you get what I'm saying. He's also currently writing a memoir about his complicated history with lap swimming called My Weight in Water, which is forthcoming with Spiegel and Grau. And since 2016, Michael has also been an instructor with the Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop, and he teaches creative writing at Augsburg's University's low-res MFA program. But in spite of all those credentials, Michael tells me in this conversation that he still struggles to believe that his voice matters. Does that sound familiar? It certainly did for me. Does the world really need what you and I have to say? That's a question that so many of us face. For Michael, even with the growing accolades, some of those familiar voices of the resistance never fade. And now, as someone who got a late start at his craft... He's trying to push back enough against such resistance to make up for lost time. By the end of this episode, I have no doubt that Michael will soon be a new favorite for you as well. He's relatable, thoughtful, and insightful. He's also also a wonderfully gifted writer. Stay tuned here for our conversation with Michael Kleber Dix. Michael, I'd love to start here where we start every one of our interviews um, here with the resistance. Obviously, I want to talk all about your work in his book. We start here with the same prompt and in his book, The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield, Pressfield writes this. He says, most of us have two lives, the life we live and the unlived life within us. And between the two of those stands the resistance. And I guess I wonder for you how you would respond to that. Would you agree with that? Do you feel that? And how has that affected um, for you, like your creative self at this point? Yeah. I mean, I definitely agree with that. I know for me, I think about my journey to becoming an artist. And it took me a really long time to inhabit that identity, to, to claim the label of poet. 
which I did with relative ease when we started our conversation, like, oh, poet, dad. Um, but it took me a long time to kind of come into that. Um, and I'm, I would agree with the statement, absolutely. So I had my first book, and so far my only book come out in June of 2021, which was a significant moment for me. I'd worked on the poems that are in that book over the course of a number of years, not thinking about a book, just wanting to really learn how my voice would show up in poems, trying to sound like myself and create artful work at the same time. A process that I think and I hope will take me all the way through the rest of my life. And at a certain point, I started to think about a book, started to look at poems that I'd written over the course of years, started to wonder how they were in conversation with each other, whether there was a through line, had a lot of friends share ideas on how it could form as a manuscript, and um, got it to a place where I felt comfortable sending it around. And, um, you know, I, I honestly thought that I'd, I'd maybe get a university press to take a chance on it. That process would result in a physical object that I'd sell to my friends, a couple hundred copies. And I would have been ecstatic with that, truly. And the prize that I won that resulted in its publication is a significant one in the poetry world. And I was so surprised when that call came. And in a lot of respects, um, so many wonderful things have happened as a result of that. Um, I've had been able to have a lot of wonderful conversations about the book, about the themes in the book, which is what I really wanted to do. And I also was able to to really transition toward more of a writing life, which was a goal I, I, I first set for myself probably four years ago. And it's definitely a process. I'm still in it, uh, doing a little teaching, a little freelancing, seeking opportunities associated with the book, and putting all that together as, as a kind of artist's life. But before all that, I was doing other stuff. I, didn't, I don't have an MFA in poetry. I went to law school, practiced law for a while, then worked in corporate jobs for a while, and I enjoyed all that. But at the same time, I really started to realize the thing that I love most is writing. And I started to think about ways that I could orient my life so that I'd have more time to write. And then I finally reached the point where my day job was putting me in a position where I had to say no to, to writing things all the time. And not long after the pandemic came, I'd like to think probably because the pandemic, I thought life is short. Let's let's move toward the kind of life we want to live. In other words, I had this life that I had not lived. And I wanted to move toward the one that I wanted to. And that's, again, it's a process that I'm still in. When I think about resistance for me now, I'm working on my second book. And it's a prose project. It's a memoir project. And it's about my love of swimming. Um, I love to, I love lap swimming. And lap swimming allows me to talk about all these things that I'm interested in related to body size, body image, race, vulnerability, um, skill. Like, I love to swim, and in some ways I'm good at it, and in other ways I'm often the slowest person in the pool. But for the resistance part, I think I'm back to the same challenges that I was confronting as I was thinking about whether I'm a poet at all. Um, is there a place for my voice in this art? I have some confidence there that I didn't have initially. 
I'm thinking a lot these days about audience. Who am I writing to? Um, in poetry, especially, it can be tempting to write to editors and lit journals and things along those lines. And when I'm at my writing desk, one of the things that I'm confronting is the effort to to think about audience in a more personal way, in a more authentic way, because I believe that will allow me to make the kind of art I want to make. How, how would you answer that today? Like, who are you writing to? So in poetry, it's a little easy because <laughs> it can, the answer can vary by poem. Uh, this is a poem where I'm writing to Black America. This is a poem where I'm writing to fathers. This is a poem where I'm writing to my daughter or to my younger self. Um, but if I think about audience in a more general way, um, and sometimes I do, what I end up is something that feels with this is something that feels like an abstraction. And, and here's how I would describe it. I'm writing to someone who is sitting across the table from me. And I think what I'm hoping to do in terms of language, in terms of tone, in terms of my presence in, on the page is to present myself, look, it's cultivated and thought through and um, artful, but to present myself as I would if I were having a conversation with someone, to strive for that kind of closeness, that kind of intimacy, that kind of candor. And part of what that, I think part included within that vision is this desire to, to filter out everything else and just communicate directly with another person. How that, that sounds like a, maybe a difficult proposition at times. And, and you referenced this earlier. How do I, me, I, I'm not, I'm not going to exactly be able to say how you said it earlier, but there was this, it sounded like there was this tension between I want to cultivate my words in a way that like brings forth beauty and, and like maybe in the, in these great details and to be not necessarily flowery, but maybe flowery, but you know, like to be imaginative maybe with your words and, and yet never let the words, you know, like, just be flowery to be flower. Like you've, like you've, right. you've wanted to maintain an accessibility there or an authenticity to who you really are. Yes. And yet poetry is this sort of medium where like, like really wordsmithing things um, is a, is a part of that process. So like, how do you walk that line yeah. with that medium and what you're talking about? And, and the revision process. Um, there are so many things that are happening. I'm going further into the the thinking that brought me into the, the poem or allowed me to see the possibilities for that particular poem. And I'm also thinking about meter and sound and building a more effective poem in that respect. I'm thinking about the poetic line and line breaks. And I am a relentless tinkerer in a lot of respects. I, there have been those late nights where I'm just tinkering with line breaks on the poem, trying to get it right, trying to unlock as much magic and suspense and surprise in that work as I possibly can. And there is a huge part of that process that's also deeply connected to just trying to get closer to myself. And, and there's a real balance there. I definitely want the poem to be successful as a poem. Uh, to the extent that I have <laughs> uh, awareness of what that means, and it can be it can be fleeting, right? Uh, but um, I'm a student of poetry, and I love 
the process of learning about all the possibilities that are available in that form. And at the same time, I want to sound like myself. I want to be myself. I want to, a, a question that I often ask myself at the end, toward the end of a process of writing a poem is, is it real? So there's this intellectual part of the process, but there's another part of it for me that's really emotional. Have I, have I gotten to the heart of it? Not every poem is requiring me to do difficult work, but for the ones that do, have I done that work? Um, is the poem ready in that respect? Is writing often an emotional exercise for you? Yes. Yes. And I, I was about to say, no, there's some, there, some easy breezy, you know, <laughs> I, I like to clown around too. And, and, um, I want my time at the desk to be, to incorporate play and to be joyful, but these are also, emo- joy is also an emotion. And I think of myself as, as, as heart forward. It's, it's a, it's a sentiment that feels a little bit hard to convey, but I am. The truth is I'm, I'm deeply concerned with the emotion that brought me into the, the poem, whatever it is. Recent example. Can you give one? Yeah. All right. Here's the, yeah, I, uh, two, I'll give you two quick examples. Um, I, I was working on this poem that I meant to be kind of funny and I hope it is. And it's called middle age rock star. And it's just about how my, my body is falling apart and like how my days are spent with taxes and bills and home repair projects. Like this is, you know, I've come to, I've come to the middle of my life and, and what are, what are my days like? Um, and I find it all very funny in that the poem ends with me, getting down on my knees and looking for my Sonic Youth shirt. And what what brought me into that poem was the desire to write something funny about the circumstances of middle age. Um, I also was working, the, the, the poem that I'm giving most of my attention to right now is a Sestina, which is a 39-line poem with very specific rules for how it's written. And that poem is about a conversation that I had with my daughter about mantras, about the power of mantras. And she was at a point in her life when she was thinking about those a lot and wondering about their healing power. And I was thinking about my own childhood experiences, in particular, the loss of my father when I was eight, and how I remembered having kind of a mantra that I used to repeat to myself after my father died. And uh, my brother and I both said, it's like, we're the strongest boys alive. Like we had this really awful thing happen and we're still here and we're still doing things that children do. And we are the strong, like we're so strong. So the Sestina allowed me to think about the conversation with my daughter, this moment from my childhood where I had a mantra, but didn't know that that was what it was called. And, and to think about what I gained both from that childhood experience and from that conversation with my daughter, ultimately culminating in, in advice to her. So this, this form requires a very specific approach and it's technical and I want to honor the form and to do it justice and to justify choosing the Sestina as the way to, to write that. And I want to make a poem that sounds like a poem I would make 
that sounds like me, that gets to the heart of the emotions that carried me into that project. And so a lot of things are kind of happening all at the same time. And I want to succeed with all of them. And if I could only succeed with one, it would be to get to the truth of what brought me to that poem. If it never leaves my office, if it never gets published, um, if no one else sees it, which wouldn't happen, I would send it to my daughter. I (laughs) I would feel great about it if it allowed me to reach a kind of understanding, either as a poet or as a person. Mm. If it's, if it's revelatory in some way about you. Right. Right. And to be clear, not every poem works like that, but sometimes it brings you comfort in something that you're already doing. And when you're lucky, you also get a measure of progress and it's noticeable, but not, not everything does that. But well, I also kind of think we're always on the way somewhere. Like even our, our worst project is taking us closer to some insight that will matter a lot. Yeah, I think so. I think you're right there. Uh, Michael, I want to jump back just a little bit because you were describing this period a few years ago where mm. you said my my you know my work life was was keeping me from the writing self I wanted to be. And there's this it sounded like finally the demand was overcoming the supply and you had to make some changes there to be able to. And I think a lot of people live there in that tension. Like when we describe resistance and say, there's this person I want to be and there's a person I am. And how do I get there? How do I bridge that gap? For you, it was, I'm going to wait until like, I have a really good excuse really to like do that because then it's there waiting Looking back at that, do you wish you would have taken maybe a step of faith before then? And I guess I, I guess I wonder what you'd even say looking back now to someone who's wrestling in that tension. Um, obviously, every every one is different, and there's no ubiquitous sort of advice you could that applies to everyone. But just from your perspective, I wonder like what you've learned about that, and then in the rearview mirror with that resistance, what you'd maybe advise. I think the answer for me ends up being no. I don't wish I would have taken a leap sooner. However, at the point that I did take the leap, it was a leap. <laughs> it really was. Um, I'll tell I'll tell you what my desires were at that time. When I left my job and decided to pursue writing in earnest is the main thing that I do. My daughter was in college. We were helping to finance that, you know, married with all the kind of American obligations that, that I should say that, that I was lucky to have. So the home, uh, the mortgage, the maintenance, all of those types of things, the desire to have health care and to save a little bit for a time when we work less and to help our daughter while she was in school and, one of the things I think that's really challenging about being an artist in America is that it's so hard to be an artist and make the rent at the same time. The cost of living is so high. And if you incorporate things like healthcare and self-care and time for rest, it's really, really hard to do. At the same time, I also really wanted to write more and to move closer to full-time work as an artist. I don't know that I could put that first on my list of things. But I was really happy when I reached a point where I could move it from the idea column to the action 
column. So, and, and, and part of that, I think, is, I mean, I was 53 when all that was happening. 52. I was 52 when all that was happening. And I think if you and I were meeting when I was 25 and I was thinking about leaping at age 22, I would hope my answer would be different. But I had acquired by that point other projects that mattered to me as much. And a huge part of who I am is, and I'm not looking for a trophy here, it's just to say I really was trying to think of how to do all the things that were important to me at the same time. And so really for anyone else, it would be the wrestling with those same things, obviously. Right. And from time to time, I'll visit a classroom at a high school, at a college with undergrads, or at a university or college with graduate students. And I always hope that... And if they don't bring it up, I try to, that there will come a point where we talk about how to do it. I had some people who shared ideas with me, um, but I've also acquired some ideas as I've gone through that process. And I, I take a moment to say, here's how I do it. And if it's possible for me, it's possible for you as well. So it's a little bit of teaching. It's a little bit of freelancing. It's income from the book. And it's also grants and fellowships and all these other things that are out there for artists. And my goal and a goal that's common, I think, for people who are at my career stage is to get to the point where you're teaching a little bit less, freelancing a little bit less, less reliant on grants and fellowships and better able to provide a life for yourself and make art and have time to make art and to have the conversations that result from the work that you're making and do that type of thing. It's it's a process that plays forward over a period of time, but it's it's possible. How great did the friction ever feel? Or how great was the you know that that longing, that unfulfilled like whatever that was, however far back that goes. Do you remember like sort of a period of greatest frustration there with not being at where you wanted to be at? Yes. Yeah. I started writing when I was in fourth grade. And what I mean by that is the first time I wrote something that was not assigned to me, I was in fourth grade. And it's something that I have done my entire life, not every day. But um, as ideas arrived, I would make time to, to pursue them and to write stories and poems. And I went to college and I studied other things. And I'm so I loved what I studied. I loved political science and I loved law school. I started practicing law and I liked it, but did not love it. And that was the point at which I started to think there's a moment where it's like, I don't want to spend my career as attorney, as an attorney. Then it was, I don't think I can do this for 20 years. I don't think I could do it for 10. And then it's like, well, what is it that you want to do? And I knew I wanted to be a writer. And I first had that idea when I was 29 and I first did it when I was 52. <laughs> so in between there, there were a lot of things that I really wanted to do. Get married, have a child, build a life together as a family. And I was learning also, taking poetry classes, working with a mentor for many years, getting a sense for how poems work and also how my voice, as I said, shows up in poetry. So you were like training in there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You were investing in education toward that direction. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And 
there were moments along the way where I wanted it to go faster. <laughs> um, I, I, a lot of what I did in art for many years was in the margins of the day. I was busy with so many other things, things that I wanted to do, like be present with my daughter and things that I didn't really necessarily want to do, like the particular job that I had. And yeah, there was a moment of frustration there where the resistance was at its apex, where I felt the greatest distance from who I was and who I wanted to be. Not in a daily way, not even in an agonizing way, but certainly in a way that I recognized and in a way that filled me with the desire for something different. Yeah, I was just curious about that as we were as we were talking about it. By the way, I'm not even sure in you know, almost 26 minutes into this that we've ever even mentioned. First of all, we're talking about worldly things, which is the name of the book. Yeah, and I'll, you know, um, I'm sure I will have already brought this up in the intro, but um, yeah, I wanted to dive into that because you were talking about writing for your daughter, and 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 you write towards several familial figures mm-hmm. in the book. And when you're referencing, it, it made me want to ask you this: when you're referencing people who who are not in control of the material. And yet they're referenced by the material, described by the material, belonging to the material. I, I wondered how you wrestle with a level of authorial responsibility. I don't even know if that's a word. It works. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, right? Like, I do. How do you handle you – Yeah, know, because I'm, I'm sure you have to see them at family reunions or you have to, you know, on weekends, whatever, right? Like, like – What's the responsibility there between, hey, this is true, at least as I experienced it, and I'm trying to be true to me, right? versus them bringing in some of those people and having them maybe affected by the work? Yeah, it's significant. It really is. And, and you framed it well. I want the work to be truthful. I want it to be authentic. I want it to be real. And I write about my mother and my father, to a lesser extent my brother, my daughter about wonderful moments with them and difficult moments with them. And there's a part of me that sees those things as part and parcel of the human life. However well-intentioned we are, we're going to collide sometimes. So it's, it's the, how do we say the difficult thing in a way that's truthful, understanding that not everyone will appreciate it. We'll see it however it was intended. And my intentions are always going to be positive. I have a poem in Worldly Things called Seismic Activities, which is about my father and my experience of being a father. And it's a contrapuntal. So it's a poem in two towers. And one tower is my dad and one tower is me as a dad. And one of the things I write about is my father's tendency toward anger, his temper, which could also express itself in physical violence. And it was never completely out of control, but it was, it was far from ideal. And there's a moment in that poem where I say that my father was beautiful too, heartbreakingly beautiful. And part of it is I want to, in, in, the, in writing about that, and, and incidentally, in my tower, there's this moment where my daughter is young. Uh, I don't say this in a poem, but I was, dad for the week. My wife was out of town. I was exhausted. I tipped over a wine glass and I was trying to keep my daughter from walking toward it. So I was also afraid. And she was not 
doing what I wanted to do. And I picked her up and I set her down on the couch forcefully. And I was appalled. And it was a significant moment for me because I realized in that moment that absent a concerted effort, I would parent in the way that I was parented, which is something I did not want to do. And the point of the poem is to talk about that journey, to talk about that revelation, that moment of great learning for me in a way that I hope will be helpful to other people who are experiencing that too. So I want in that moment to talk about my father and I want to say two things, multiple things, but two that I will highlight right now. One is that there were times when he got it spectacularly wrong and he was also awesome, which is the way it is with all of us. When the book came out, I was like, at some point, my aunts, my, my father's sisters may read this. And what would I say to them if they called? And I think that what I would say is pretty similar to what I just said to you. I really wanted to write about this. And I loved my dad. And I saw that this he was broken or flawed or tra- traumatized in this one particular way. And I was too. So let's talk about it. So I think there's tremendous responsibility there, a tremendous amount of care required. I think it's vitally important that you come into that work with a significant reason for doing it. And it cannot be revenge or (laughs) anything along those lines. And I would never do it without without a a real, really compelling. I'm, I'm compelled toward that work for a reason. And if I have not found it, then I know that the poem's not ready. The only person I ask before I send out anything where I've written about them is my daughter. And I have a lot of poetic heroes, Sharon Olds and Danette Smith and Hugh Min Nguyen, poets who write with candor, with candor and courage, who remind me that you can say it and that it's important to say it. And and if you're if you're doing it well, if you're honoring the the, the responsibility of it, it it can really add a lot to the human experience, to the conversations that we have. Yeah, yeah, like like poems as portals in a way. Right. Yeah. Boy, that's great. That's great, uh, Michael. I wanted to ask just about a, a little bit more here, just w- just with worldly things, and the other angle that was just so moving to me within this collection was a willingness to serve as a witness to so much oppression, pain, marginalization, violence, some of these experiences. And yet it never felt so heavy. It was always a ray of light to be found. There was always like a way, I don't know, there was an optimism or a hope in the work where it felt like you want to tell the truth. And yet there's also this earnest part of you that hasn't been like totally burned by it all. Like they're like, I don't know. And, and I wonder how intentional that was. As like you said, I went back to like when you're putting this together and you've got all this body of work that you've had over time, I wondered how intentional that was to sort of make sure that was a part of the framework and that it wasn't just maybe all of this descriptive heaviness without some of that or, or whether that just came out. I wonder if you could speak to that. Yeah. Thank you. That's such a good question. I, it was not strategic. I can tell you that for sure, but it was, it was, I was definitely aware of that when I am giving the elevator pitch for the book, I've I've learned to say it's about who I'm from, my family, where I live, 
America, the upper Midwest, a racialized country, America in this moment of time, place as many things, but, but also in a general way now or place during the course of my life. And then also where I'd like to live, the kind of world that I'd like to live in. Um, in the process of putting the book together, I realized that I kind of write about the same three things all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Intimacy, community, and empathy. I'm trying, I think in some ways my life's work is to figure out how to be authentically intimate in all of my relationships with people that I care about, to be close to them, to be vulnerable with them, not in a way that's forced or scheduled, but just in a way that I'm fully present with them, listening when they're sharing and I'm sharing with them fully as well. For reasons that I cannot explain, and sometimes I can feel a little naive or shy about it, but my, my default setting is contentment. I have a lot of blessings in my life. Um, I've had a lot of adversity in my life. On the side of the blessings is, is that, that general contentment. I don't want to misstate it. I have bad days and rough runs and moments of anguish and profound fatigue and all of it. But in general, I remain optimistic and hopeful and, and largely content. And I don't know why that is. Spiritually, I'm a humanist. And I think that that's rooted in that same particular kind of faith. And, and I think when that hopefulness in the presence of candor about what's really hurtful and difficult and longstanding and wrong is really just me being my authentic self. And I, I don't find myself leaning into that in any particular way. I find it being there. And earlier I spoke about the effort to be and to get to myself in the revision process and the writing process. And there are times when the self on that day is showing up with anger or with sadness or, or otherwise, but often enough, I'm coming forward with this, this thing that is difficult or upsetting with the hope of getting people to spend some time with it in a way that will be useful to them and perhaps to other people. And that that's philosophical and organic. It's, it's, a, it's a big part of, of who I am. You've been listening to The Resistance. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast app. And for more information or further episodes, you can find us at listentotheresistance.com. Audio production by Isaac Vining. Theme music by Jake Kirkpatrick. My name is Matt Connor, and I'm your host. Thank you so much for listening.